Well, glad you guys are with us again. It's, it seems like it's been a while. I got to take a father-son trip with my son, and uh, we enjoyed it. And uh, I highly recommend Maine. It's a visual place to look at, and uh, they make good lobster there. So I uh, appreciate you letting me be away. Appreciate you, Jeff, taking over for me, and uh, appreciate that very much. Uh, we're in uh, Lesson 4. We're in Second Peter. We're in Second Peter chapter 1, 8 through 21. We've read this multiple times. Uh, what I want to emphasize today is, is a question that I probably get asked more than any other question. Is I've been in ministry for 30-something years as a teacher in various things, chaplain especially. Uh, and the question is, uh, and I'm sure Terry could say, yes, I've heard this question a hundred times too, or a thousand, or however many times. Can I know if I'm a Christian? Can I know for sure if I'm in Christ? Uh, and if I say, yes, you can know for sure if I'm in Christ, is that presumptuous of me to say, I know I'm a Christian? Is that presumptuous of me? Uh, can I know that, uh, my, that my future is secure? Can I know that Christ has saved me? Uh, and so, in uh, what role does doubt play in that? Uh, I know all of us in this room have had moments of doubt. Uh, Billy Graham was asked one time if, if he ever doubted his the legitimacy of his faith. And he said, thought for when he said, I used to. I used to. And I think that's a, uh, a good response, a fair response. I think any of us, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, uh, we would sometimes question whether we are. And we do that because, in my experience, it's this. If I'm in Christ, why did I just think that thought? If I'm in Christ, why did I just say that to my wife? If I'm in Christ, why did I look at that? If, if I'm in Christ, why did I react to that person that way? So we, 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 we doubt because we are still in this flesh, right? And we, we go through emotional upheavals in our lives. Some days we, uh, the Spurgeons of the world and Abraham Lincoln's deep and spiritual men battled with great depression and great despair. And so that despair led them to great moments of doubt and discouragement. And uh, so we all, if we admit it, we go through periods of doubt and despondency. And what I want you to understand today as we go through this text, as we see the transfiguration, and then we see the surety of the Word of God, we need to understand that our assurance is not based upon our emotions, okay? Because our emotions change and they are fickle. Our emotions deceive us. Our emotions confuse us, okay? And so many days we don't feel very Christian. Many days we don't feel very spiritual. Many days we have difficult days, fiery darts from the wicked one day. We have multiple temptations in a day, difficult days. And we are finite in our understanding of truth, but we need to understand that it's not the emotion uh, that, that it assures us, it is what the Word of God says. And what the Word of God says is the evidence is indisputable, and you can know if you are in Christ or if you're not in Christ. So we're going to look at that today. The questions that I answered, the answer to all of them is yes. Uh, I can know I'm in Christ. Uh, is it presumptuous on my part if I answer yes? The answer to that one is no, excuse me. But it says, does God want us to know? Yes. Does, does doubt have a role in this? Yes. Uh, so we're going to look at these as we look at this. But the, I'm going to look at verse 10. Uh, you remember in First Peter there were seven moral imperatives, foundational imperatives, commands, and we took those seven uh, foundational imperatives and we taught the whole book around those imperatives. Now, in this book, Second Peter, there are four foundational imperatives, and this is the first foundational imperative, and it's going to be uh, the foundation upon which we do this study today, and it's in verse 10. So if you look at, with, look at me in verse 10, this is a command. This command, as it did in First Peter, this command comes after theology and it comes after doctrine. This command just doesn't appear uh, out of nowhere, but it is an expected command after we see the doctrine that we have been uh, looking at for the last three weeks. So uh, 
last three studies. So look at verse uh, verse 10, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to make your call and your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we look at this, as we look at these questions about if we can know if we're in Christ or not, uh, we need to look at this moral, this foundational imperative in verse 10. Notice that he says, brethren. He is writing to brothers and sisters in Christ. This word brethren uh, is, is from the word phileo, which is brotherly love. So he's addressing, addressing fellow believers in Christ. And notice he's addressing them in this situation. In 2 Peter, he's addressing them as dear brothers. It's an endearing word. He's addressing them because they are being inundated with false teachers. And he, they are being inundated by false uh, uh, pastors, teachers, leaders who are leading them astray. These leaders are led by their flesh. They're led by lust for things, money, and they are licentious. That means that they do not believe that uh, that the Word of God governs their life. They are, you remember we talked about they were part of the Gnostic heresy. They believe that you can live how you want to live because the body and the soul are separate. The body is bad, the soul is good, and so whatever you do in the body doesn't affect the soul. And we will talk about that in great detail starting next week. But these were false believers. So Peter, just like in First Peter, he was writing to them because they were suffering and they were going through trials and tribulations. So this same group, a different little later on, he's addressing them with the specific application of the heresy of the day and the teachers of the day. So he's trying to comfort them and to tell them but just because these believers are making claims to Christ and they are not living consistent to their claims, so they are false and they will be judged for their, uh, for their falling away and their leading ministry. He's encouraging these believers just like we would be encouraged by this. Yes, there are many false teachers out there. Many people are falling away. If you look at the polls, 38% I saw last week, 38% of Christians believe in the sovereignty of God. And, uh, 38, and it's even less than that believe that the, the Bible is, is, uh, is, uh, is the inher- inerrant word of God and without error and it should govern our behavior in life. So many are falling away. So Peter is writing to people. He's encouraging with this endearing term, endearing term, brothers in Christ. And he's encouraging him. Yeah, I know it looks like you're in the minority. You are. We are in the minority. Evangelical churches today are falling fast. Spurgeon warned about this in the, in the downgrade, downgrade controversy 150 years ago. Now, if he was worried about it 100 years, 100, how much more today? So we see this falling away. We see no one embraces truth anymore. Uh, and it is, uh, and that morality is subjective and there's nothing objective about it. And how can you know, is there a, is there a, a real way to live our life? And so Peter's addressing us today too. So just be encouraged that. And he says, so he says, brethren, be more diligent. Remember we looked at this word last time. The word diligent means to be strenuously involved in your day-to-day spiritual activity. It means to daily exercise the graces God has given you. Daily read your word, God's word. Daily pray. Daily be obedient. Daily confess your sins. Daily participate in good works. All these things are part of the Christian graces. And, and so he tells the brethren in their suffering, in their, uh, 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 living in amongst this society that is godless, even those who claim to be believers. He would encourage me, he would encourage you to be diligent, to be strenuously involved. And it, and it really, I love the definition I gave. It's human effort subordinate to what God has done. We are not earning our salvation. We are working as God gives us the desire, the strength, and the ability, 
we are subordinate to what he has done. And because what he has done, we then have a desire and an ability. Okay, so we have to be strenuously involved. There is no such thing as a slothful Christian. Shouldn't be. If you are apathetic toward God and his word, if you are apathetic toward uh, being around his people, and we're going to get into all these things, these are bad signs. Okay, and we'll get into all that. But God has created this desire and this ability to do his good pleasure. But we work alongside him and under him, subordinate to him. And we do that because he has begun a work in us, right? So this diligence is, 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 is on us. Uh, as I've said many times, God in his providence doesn't zap us in a microwave and, and create the perfect mature Christian. We have to come alongside and we put out an effort. That's progressive sanctification. So, and uh, this is dovetailed in one of my favorite books. I say that about every book, but Hebrews 6, 6, 11, I think is a very important verse uh, for, uh, for us. Uh, it says 6, 11 Hebrews, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Paul, uh, whomever the writer of Hebrews is, maybe it's Apollos, we don't know, but he dovetailed, the Holy Spirit wrote them both, but there's this picture of diligence, and we need to be not sluggish, not slothful, not lazy, but we need to be diligent, and that diligence creates a lifestyle of obedience, and that lifestyle of obedience gives us the assurance that we're in Christ, okay? That's what it means to know God, is to know Him and to have His nature and to participate in His divine attributes. Okay, we'll get, we will get into that in a minute. But So the imperative, be more diligent, and we see that in verse 5. You look at First uh, Peter, if you look at verse 5, the same word is used. Uh, but for this very reason, giving all diligence. So that's the very best, not second-handed effort, not slothfulness. So it's the verse, look at verse 14, the same chapter. Knowing, uh, uh, no, it's, it's chapter 3, verse 14. The word is, uh, look at this, this, uh, this is going to be imperative number three, which we'll get into in a, in a month or so. Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. So we see this, this word, it's one of the secondary themes of Second Peter, diligence. So scripture tells us to examine yourself. So the first question I want to ask you is, are you a diligent follower of Christ? We do not absorb this. We don't absorb growing in grace by osmosis. Okay? We grow in grace by day by day, by moment by moment, second by second, looking to Him, being strengthened by Him, and by the means by which He provides for us, which is His Word, which is His Spirit, which is prayer, many other things. So, so the imperative is, brothers, guys in this room, guys on Zoom, are you being diligent in your walk with Christ? Have you become complacent? Have you become lethargic? One of the great admonitions of Scripture is to the Laodicean church in the Revelation. And that Laodicean church represents the church age in which we live today. It also represented a specific church in Turkey. But that admonition was to Christ was he hated their lukewarmness. He says, I'd rather you be cold or hot, but not lukewarm. Lukewarm shows an indifference. And lukewarmness, he says, you don't know you're wretched, miserable, blind, poor, and naked. That's what lukewarmness causes, an indifference an unawareness of who we are or what we are, and God hates it. And he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. He hates lukewarmness in his people. So question number one, challenge number one, examination number one, am I, am I diligent in my 
desire to become more and more like Christ? Is he transforming my mind and my will by his word? And uh, uh, is he growing his faith in me? Because his faith is grown by hearing the word of God. Okay, that's how he just designed it. So if you're not hearing God's word... Because you're not reading God's word, that is a lack of diligence on your part. And that is a, when you examine yourselves, you have to see that that is a root cause, okay? A root cause of what, of your lack of growth and grace. So it's an imperative uh, to make your call and election sure. First of all, I want to say is God knows those who are His. So when He says to make your calling and election sure, the, the, the surety is for your behalf and for your benefit. When he tested Abraham, remember when Abraham, he told Abraham to kill his first son, Isaac, and I, and he was about to do it, and he, and he did it, and God spoke, and he said, now I know that you have faith, and now I know. But it wasn't that he didn't know before. Now Abraham knows that he can completely trust God, and Abraham believed, even if I kill Isaac, Scripture tells us, he believed that God would have raised Isaac from the dead. So the so when it says making sure of your call and election, it's not that God doesn't know. God knows those who are His, but it is for our benefit, it is for our assurance, it is for our walk with Him through these difficult, dark days. And so, so when He asks that, when He commands this, it is for our benefit. God already knows. And just verses to support the fact that God knows. If uh, Those of you who are here and those of you who are Zooming, I've got multiple verses on the board. Uh, let's look at uh, Romans 8, uh, a very familiar verse uh, to all of us in this church. Uh, it's a verse that draw, gives much comfort to me and has over the many years uh, uh, just look at verse 28. Uh, I pray this in my prayer. I often do. But look at 828 of Romans. Uh, God knows those who are His. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called, whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. We call that the unbreakable chain of God's grace. So God has foreknew you, and he has elected you, and he will finish his work in you when you are glorified, when you have a new body, where there's no no corruption, no mortality, and he will finish the work. Those of you who are with me in the book of John, one of the great themes of John is the sovereignty of God in salvation. And we looked at that. I want to read it again just to encourage you that the Lord knows those who are His. And He knows every one of us. And every one of us who are His will come to Him. And so we see that in multiple verses. I just picked one. Look at John 10, verse 14. Helping us understand to make sure of our calling election is for our benefit, not God's. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and I will also bring them in, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So God knows those who He is. Another verse that's very encouraging to us, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, the longest verse in the Greek language, one verse, it's amazing uh, how packed this verse is, the greatest sentence ever ever coined uh, by man through the Spirit. Uh, look at, uh, let's just look at uh, Ephesians 1 verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, He's predestined us to adoptions as Son by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glory, of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. So there's another verse. Many others. Uh, look at Paul's own uh, uh understanding of why he's an apostle. Look at Galatians chapter 1, 15 and 16. I love this. Paul said, uh, Galatians 1, 15 and 16, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, 
It pleased him to reveal his son in in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so we see Paul's testimony. Remember the great testimony of Jeremiah? Look at Jeremiah. Talk about uh, uh, foreknowing someone. Uh, Jeremiah was foreknown before he was uh, a gleam in his father's eye, before he was in the womb. Look what he, look what Jeremiah says about uh, the God knows who are his. These should encourage us, these verses. Look at Jeremiah 1.4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold, I formed you in the womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And so he goes on and on. Uh, God telling Jeremiah that he has a purpose for him, that he's always had a purpose for him, as he does each one of us sitting in this room and listening to us via Zoom. God knows us that we're his. And, of course, the Apostle Paul said in, in the most famous line regarding this, remember Second Timothy? Second Timothy, look with me, his final swan song before he passes to glory. Look at 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 19. It tells us, chapter 2, 19, uh, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And if you are one of His, you will name the name of Christ and you will depart from iniquity. So, We are known by God, and God desires us to know that we know by making sure of our call and election. Now, there are two calls in Scripture. When it says making sure of your calling and your election, there's two calls in Scripture. Uh, One is a general call, as I have on the boards. It is external, and it is resistible, and it is a call made to all men. And uh, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth, right? That's a general call to all men. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a general call to all men. Uh, and But that call is general, and it is an external call, and it can be resisted by men. And indeed, it is resisted by men. Most men resist the call. Uh, uh, Paul said in his great sermon at the uh, Areopagus in Athens, Greece, he says, God commands all men everywhere to repent, right? So there is a general call and God commands men to repent. Now, this is not the call spoken of in this verse. It's not the call spoken of in First Peter. It's not the call that's used in all the Pauline apostles. This call, the second call, is a internal and it is a specific call. It's not a general call. This call is is internal. It's of the Holy Spirit. And it is specific to His elect, to His people. And the call of God, this summons from a king, is irresistible. And so when God says, making sure you're calling an election, sure He is saying, those of you I have called irresistibly by my Spirit will come to me. And so we understand that there is an internal call. All of us in this room that are in Christ have been called by that internal call. And that call was irresistible because he changes our will and our desires, right? And he takes us from a state of death to a state of life. As the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and gives us this great gift of faith, it is Him that does it. Salvation is of the Lord. Anybody understand the two calls? There's an external and an internal. One is irresistible. One is resistible. And, and those who have been summoned by the King will come to the King, willingly to the King, uh, submitting to the King as He changes us, as He calls us. Let me, uh, just, let me just support what I just said. It was a mouthful by John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We've done this, but it's been a long time. And I know you have forgotten. But as Peter does, it is my duty to remind you, and it is not a burden for me to remind you, because we are all the same finite, forgetful flesh. Look at John 6.37. 
John 6.37 All that the Father gives will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I will lose nothing but will raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son, believes in him, will have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. If you go to verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so we see this irresistible call of grace to God's people, to us elect, Out of the good pleasure of his will before the foundation of the world, he chose us and we say hallelujah that he would have called us in this great grace. And so he tells us for our benefit, we need to examine ourselves. Now, Terry is going to do a communion service today. And Terry always does this very well. He always tells us before we take the table, we need to do what? Examine ourselves, right? to make sure our lives are consistent and we're not taking this table in an unworthy manner. That's a good It's a good admonition to us. Thankfully, does it. Uh, but we see that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Uh, and then I want you to look at verse 31. As we look at this call to examine ourselves to make sure of our call in election. <coughs> verse 31. <coughs> For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So we need to understand it's important for us to examine our lives, and we examine our lives based upon what the Word of God tells us. Not what we say, not what we think, not what we feel, not what the devil says, not what the world system says, but we examine ourselves based upon what this inerrant word says. And so he calls us to examine ourselves. Uh, notice, look at the Second Corinthians. Notice that he there's that this is uh, mentioned twice in in the book of Corinthians to the church at Corinth. Why did Paul have to warn and tell the church at Corinth twice to examine themselves? What was the church of Corinth like? They had lots of problems. They they struggled with pride. They struggled about uh, uh, following after Paul, Apollos, and they just struggled with many things. They struggled with sexual immorality. They they struggled with a variety of things. And so Paul wanted them to make sure that their that the 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 thought that they are truly in the faith was being contradicted by their actions. And so he warned them twice. Uh, he warned them in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So we need to be careful that, that our walk matches our talk. And uh, we can't be presumptuous. Oh, I'm a believer. I walk down the aisle. My daddy was a believer. Uh, I do this and I do that and I do that. Uh, it's not what we think, what we feel, but it is it is in what God says about us. Look at 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, the last thing he says to the church at Corinth, he says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Be, and then he says, uh, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. So he encourages the church at Corinth. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Now, there is a great uh, lyric in my favorite Christian group, Casting Crowns. And I mentioned this many times, and I have, and I will continue to do so. And it says, I cannot live by how I feel, but what the Word of God reveals. I'm not holding on to you, but you're holding on to me. And I want you to remember that lyric because there are dark emotional days for all of us and there are difficult days when which we doubt, okay? But we do not doubt based upon emotion, but we, we but what God's Word reveals. So I want to go through now the evidences that we are in Christ. Number one evidence, the one that is 
over all the evidences. This is the most important evidence. This evidence will lead to other evidences. Without this evidence, you will not uh, the other evidence will not occur. And, and, and so if you want to ask yourself, am I in Christ? Do I know if I'm in Christ? What about the doubts that pop up in my life? This is, this is the number one criteria. And it is this. Does the Holy Spirit dwell in you? Period. How can I know if I'm in Christ? And you have to examine yourselves. This is the primary question. Does the Holy Spirit live in me? It tells us in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It tells us very, very clearly. Chapter 8, Romans, verse 9. But you, talking to believers, talking to us, you were not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Your life should not be characterized by fleshly living. Flesh should not dominate you, how you think and how you act. If the flesh dominates the way you think and act and react, this is a cause for you not to be assured, but to examine yourself, okay? So it says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells with you or in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his, period. Okay, so how do I know if I'm in Christ? Does the Holy Spirit live in you? That's the number one criteria. Does the Holy Spirit live in you? Have you been regenerated by the Holy Spirit? The scripture says in Genesis, in the beginning, God created. That word created is a Hebrew word. It means ex nihilio. It means out of nothing, something. So just as God created the world out of nothing, he spoke it into existence. So the Holy Spirit creates out of nothing, something. He creates life to those of us who were dead, okay? There were there was nothing in us that was alive, but God in His Spirit has to speak life into us. That's what regeneration is, bringing back to life that which is dead. And so the Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Holy Spirit creates faith in us, and that faith through grace is the means by which we apprehend Christ, okay? So, the question is, does the Holy Spirit dwell in me? And how do I know that the Holy Spirit dwells in me? Well, there are, there are evidences that are very certain in yours and my life. So, as I'm telling you this, I want you to examine yourselves. And if you're honest, you're going to say sometimes, most of the times, or... I don't know. Does the Holy Spirit of God dwell in you? It's not a feeling, okay? Although there is great emotion in it, but it's not a feeling. It is an evidence produced by the Spirit, and the Spirit will always produce fruit in His people that He indwells, okay? So, as we go back to what we talked about earlier, let's go back to 1 Peter the Scripture tells us that, look at verse, uh, remember we said, look at verse 2 of chapter 1, okay, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full and complete knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, His divine power. That's talking about the Godhead's work in us. Specifically, we're looking that it's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God has given to us all things that pertain to spiritual life. Okay? We talked about this in great detail. And look at verse 4. By which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these we are partakers of the divine nature. Stop there. 
The Holy Spirit of God must dwell in you for you to be a believer, for you to be saved, for you to be in Christ, for you to have assurance and hope, right? And the Holy Spirit of God will always do this in your life. He will make you a partaker of the divine nature. And would we say that meant? It's been three weeks. What does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? Pardon me? You wasn't even here, and I'm very excited. Wayne, go ahead. His internal life indwells us, yes. To, to partake of the divine nature, we have new attitudes, we have new dispositions, we have a new will, we have a new way of thinking, we have new communion with God. So if the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, you have new desires. All the old desires pass away. And everything becomes new. Do we have moments when we have flashbacks and we remember our wicked life? Yes. Yes. That's just part of the consequences of having a wicked life, all right? And believe me, I have lots of consequences, okay? But when he says all we're new in Christ, the old is passing away and all is becoming new, the new desires, the youthful lusts that used to control us no longer do, and we now desire new things, okay? We, we have a new will. We have a new ability to do that will. The, the old desires of the flesh, although they come back and, and, and it's a temporary, but it doesn't finally control us. But the Holy Spirit of God moves us to shape us like His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we see that we become partakers of the divine nature. And look at this, and we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. Remember we talked about that corruption, the decomposition of our flesh. And so He's he's making us new. We're still in this body of sin and death, yes. But the new desires start to control us and will us and progress us. And so we should see a steady climb, although there are jags in the climb, there are cliffs in the desire, in the, in the, in the, in the growth perhaps. But, and so we see this. And look at verse five. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us. Okay, look at verse 5. We give all diligence, we add to the faith. Remember, the faith is something that is there. It's a grace of God. It's the seedbed, I said, that which all of these other Christian virtues are going to grow from. So he plants that seed, he grows that seed. Consider faith a garden that's going to grow and mature and produce fruit. But he's, he produces the, the seedbed of it, which is his faith. And then when he says, you add to your faith virtue, that's moral goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and then love. So the Holy Spirit, when he indwells you, he starts to produce these things in you. And so you have to examine yourselves. Am I growing more and more virtuous? And only you can answer that. I guarantee you, your wife can. <laughs> Are you becoming more knowledgeable of the Word of God? Are you hiding that Word, meditating on that Word? Is that Word a light and a lamp into your feet and a path? Can you say with the psalmist, I love thy law and it is my meditation all the day? Hmm? Can you say that? If you can say that, that is an evidence that you love God's Word, and that loving God's Word is, I guarantee you, is a fruit of the Spirit. You would not love God's Word. You hate God's Word when you when you hate Christ and you're not in Christ. So simply, is the Spirit of God producing a love for the Word in you? And if it's not... And I know many, many, many people who never read the Word of God, and you question why they don't, and it's because they don't love it, okay? And that's a, that's a bad sign, okay? But it's a sign that can be grown. Yes, ma'am. I think that's where most of us 
What Sheila said is when, when affliction and trouble comes, we want the easy way out instead of the progression to holiness and godliness, and that's very true. And, uh, but the Holy Spirit of God will, will take what God gives in affliction, and He will grow you through it. And Good comment, excellent comment, and yes, that is in Job. Uh, so I ask, your, ask me and I ask you, are you becoming more Christ-like? Are you uh, growing in faith? Are you virtuous, mo- moral excellence? Are you? Do you love His Word? I got so many notes. I don't even look at them. Are you growing in the Christian graces? Uh, are, I love what it says here. Uh, uh, I love what it says in verse. Are these graces yours, and are they abounding in you? Are they abounding in you? What I mean by that, uh, uh, do you understand that you possess these graces through grace? That the Holy Spirit puts this in you and it is your possession and that these qualities are now a part of who you are and your character. Are they abounding? Are they continually growing in you? Uh, and lack of growth is a sign of impending death. Look what I says. Look what one of the commentators. I've, if the graces are yours, which I'm talking about the diligence and the virtue and the knowledge and the godliness and the brotherly kindness and the love. If these virtues are yours, Scripture tells us uh, in verse 9, uh, and actually, in verse eight, you will not be barren nor unfruitful. That literally means you will not be useless as a Christian. Uh, you will not be idle. You will not be unworking. Uh, it means that you will not be fruitless. Uh, it's a picture of a tree. When Jesus saw a tree and he saw no fruit on it, he said, "Cut the tree down. It don't bear fruit." John the Baptist says. Uh, you need to bear fruits into repentance and, and, the, and the wicked will be cut down. So uh, if these graces are yours, if the Holy Spirit indwells you, you are not going to be fruitless. Okay? The fruit of the Spirit is, as opposed to the works of the flesh, let me turn uh, uh, to Galatians 5. This is how we used to be. And you have to examine yourself is my life still characterized by this? Uh, and if you say, yes, it is, uh, then we've got a problem. But verse 19, this is the way we used to be before grace abounded and, and the Spirit indwells us. Uh, 5.19, we used to be adulterers. We used to be sexually immoral people. We used to be unclean. We used to be lewd, idolatrous. That means worshiping other gods, prioritizing everything other than God. Sorcery is drug users, hatred, contentious. We were jealous. We were characterized by outbursts of wrath. We were selfishly ambitious. We were heretical. We were envious. We were murderers. We hated. We were drunks. We reveled. And, uh, and then it says, those who continue to practice such things will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But now, guys, if we're partakers of the divine nature, if the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, we are now, as we abide and abound, we now, the Holy Spirit produces love, joy, and peace. He produces long-suffering, kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I ask me and I ask you, do you see and is the Holy Spirit working these fruits in you? That's how you examine yourself. It's not, do I feel like a Christian today? The answer will probably be no, right? But the evidence is, based upon the Word of God, Ask your spouse, be honest with yourself, am I growing in these graces? Is my life becoming more fruitful? Am I becoming more like Christ? Is my thinking different? Can you see a difference in me than you saw 30 years ago, hon? And uh, that's a difficult question to ask your spouse, right? And if your spouse says, you're worse than you used to be, that's a problem. But I trust that most of your spouses 
will be able to say, yes, I have seen growth in you and thank the Lord that you're not like you used to be and I hope one day you will improve from where you are now, huh? As our spouses would tell us. So, is the Holy Spirit indwelling you? Is He producing your fr- His fruit in you? And are you growing in grace? I could go on and on, and I'm going to do it for five more minutes. Maybe seven. Yes. Born again. As Sally says, we are not pigs with lipstick. Lipstick. We are new natures. We are new in Christ. We are born of the Spirit. Born a second time, right? Thank you, Rusty. Now, I love what this quote says. Growth directed in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The best evidence that can be given of knowing the Lord is to follow on to know Him. A lazy indifference to or a disparagement of this knowledge of our Lord is fundamentally opposed to the very nature of the Christian life. So are you abounding and continuing to abound, continuing to grow, understanding none of us have arrived, right? If you think you've arrived, you have not arrived. We are arriving, okay? We are continuously growing. Each one of us are at specific and different levels, and we are moving upward and onward, right? And we don't compare ourselves to other. That would be very disturbing if I compared myself to lots of folks, and that would cause me much lack of assurance sometimes, right? But that is not the comparison, it's, is he living in you, and is he changing you? And in, now, first John, first, first John chapter 5, verse 13. As we sum this up, as we make sure of our call and our election. I asked the question when we first started this, does God want me to know if I'm in Christ? Does he want me to have a full assurance of faith? Does he want me to be able to say, like Paul says, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed him against that day? Does, does God want us to know that? And the answer is yes. The book of 1 John was written for one reason only. 1 John 5.13. What does 1 John 5.13 say? These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. So does God want you to know? Absolutely. Does He desire for you to have full assurance of faith? Absolutely. And what the book of 1 John is, it is many different ways in which we can epikinosa, know of a surety, a surety that comes from the Holy Spirit, a personal and intimate knowledge, not just a knowledge of facts, but knowledge based on life, based upon trust, and based upon submission. Okay? So we look at this book, and let me give you a few of these as I end this. Examine yourselves. Yes, we can know. The book of First John was written that you may know. And we see a few things here. Look at First John 1, 4. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. Dovetails with what Sheila says. Joy is an internal condition of the soul that is a fruit of the Spirit that is irregardless of reality or irregardless of environment, irregardless of trouble. I can have joy in my soul although my mother is dying. I can have joy in my soul uh, though I have uh, lost family members. Joy is internal, fruit of the Spirit, and it is not dependent upon circumstance or emotion. I can know and have joy because the Holy Spirit produces it in me. So God wants you to know one of the evidences as the Holy Spirit bears it in you, do you have joy? Can you count it all joy when you fall into various temptations and trials? 
And that is progressive behavior of those who are progressing in grace. Because 30 years ago, I had zero joy in suffering. As a matter of fact, I was bitter about it and didn't like it. But now, I can't have joy in the trouble. You can too, Chris, huh? Every one of us can have joy in the suffering. So that's an evidence that we know. Look at 2-3. John, 1 John 2-3. I used to tell the guys in the mission, all the drug addicts and all the alcoholics and all these people who claim to be apostles and claim to be this and that, in their madness, I would ask them one question. I asked, I tell Sunday school people this. I tell Marriage is this, whomever will listen, question number one is chapter 2, verse 3. By this we will know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Is your life characterized by obedience? Do you obey God? Are you a virtuous person? Are you a godly person? Do you pattern your life upon what the Word of God says? Or do you live like the devil Monday through Friday and Saturday and come here smiling at me on Sunday? Most church people do that. So it's it's very, very... We look for gray areas and we look for... We look for absolution and we look for whatever we look for. But the bottom line is, do you obey God? And if you don't, if your life's not characterized by that, if you are just willfully rebellious and you do not subject yourself to God or His Word and you say, no, I'm going to do it my own way and that's what the culture says, by golly, and God surely is wrong and whatever else you think in your head... Well, the answer is, is my life characterized by obedience? Okay? 2.15. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. That he that loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the world, the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Do you love the world system? Do you love what's going on on this planet? Do you love abortion? Do you love madness, riots, lawlessness? Do you love, name it. Do you love gay marriage? Do you love the the change in the culture? If you do, if you're in agreement with it, if it doesn't bother you, you are deceiving yourself because you cannot love the world system and love God. That's fairly plain, huh? period. And I don't care what you say or what you do. Do you love the world and do you love the ways of the world? Are you convinced that abortion's okay? Are you convinced that gay marriage is okay? Are you convinced of these things because the culture says it is and it's politically correct to say it is? That's not a good sign. Okay? I got a lot of good shakes and I got a lot of good air. It's good. How you about this one? Number two, chapter two, twenty-four through twenty-six. Are you abiding in Christ? Huh? Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you're going to abide in Him. A real faith given by God of His Spirit will abide forever and will not fade away. We will not be the Second Peter Corinthian church, Second Peter churches who fall away. We're not going to be the second Thessalonians warning that many will fall away. If you are in Christ, you will not permanently fall away. You will not stumble. That stumble will not be an irretrievable fall from grace. You may sin. You may go through moments of sin. You may go through months of sin. You may go through years of sin, but God will ultimately bring you back to himself. Praise the Lord for that, huh? Yeah, got somebody good. That's good. Next one, guys. Do you love the brothers? Do you love being in God's people, around God's people, in God's house? Look at First John three nineteen. Uh, well, I'm not sure that's the great word I needed to see. 
<laughs> Oops. Trust me on this. No, this is close. Uh, uh, verse, uh, 1 John 3, uh, 19, And by this we know that we are of the truth and assure our hearts before Him. For our heart condemns us. God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. If our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And this is in the context of loving the brother, right? 3, 9. Is that what I have on the board? Nope, that's not what I wanted either. Seven and eight, little children, he who practice righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who is, no, that's not it either. Chapter four, here we go. We need to love one another. Four, seven, and eight. Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God is manifest toward us, that God has sent His Son into the world that we might live through Him. And in verse 12, chapter 4, it says, No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Bottom line is, do you love being around brothers in Christ? Or would you prefer to be around other folks? Are you pretending to enjoy and you're not really fellowshipping with one another in church? Only you know that. Do you love being around God's people? Would you prefer to be around people? If you have a choice of being around God's people and worldly people, whom do you want to be around? And if there is a question in your mind and heart, not a good sign. Right? And then lastly, we just keep His commandments. We prove we love God by keeping His commandments. Now to end this. Experience versus the Word. Peter experienced a great thing on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, we talked about this multiple times in other studies. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 uh, he's talking about the transfigurations. He says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitness of his majesty. We saw God, Jesus, unveil his glory to us. That was a wonderful experience. I'm going to lay these last couple of things on you. Our assurance comes from God's word Our assurance doesn't come from experiences. Okay? Understand that. Our assurance of being in the faith do not come from experiences. Experiences are supplemental. They are not primary. God has shown me many wonderful things, and I've experienced love hugs from Him innumerable times. When I am, I am overwhelmed and I am distressed, I have experienced God's comfort, and He does that through illuminating His Word to me. Right? Specific verses that cause me to well up, and I call them love hugs. The Word of God is a primary means that assures me that I'm in Christ. Experiences are supplemental. The way I know that is because Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they experienced the most wonderful thing any man has seen. And did it change Peter? No, it did not. Peter still denied Christ. Peter denied him three times. Peter was proud and arrogant in many ways. The experience supplemented his faith, but it wasn't the assurance of his faith. The assurance of his faith is a changed life in the Word of God. So that's why it says that that the Word of God is a more prophetic word, confirms the the experience, the experience doesn't confirm the word. Okay? So to end this, in this, the word is how we're assured, and not the experience. The experiences are nice, they are supplemental, but they don't validate as the word does. So, tomorrow when you are depressed, it's not the emotion, it's what God says in his word because our feelings change. Okay, And our feelings change based upon our health, but based upon other people's health, based upon circumstances. But God's Word never 
changes. And I'm going to end with that. Next week, we're going to talk about the false prophets. And I'm going to talk about uh, the Holy Spirit bearing the word and how we can know false prophets are erroneous and what we can do to navigate around them. How does that sound? Uh, that's all I got. Anybody want to have anything to offer or add? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word assures us it's not our emotion. Help us to examine ourselves to see if we're in faith. I pray that your Holy Spirit would produce his fruit in us, that he would produce virtue and knowledge, and he would produce perseverance, and he would produce uh, godliness and kindness and love, that he would produce joy obedience, that he would produce a hate for the world system and a love for you. He would produce love for our brothers in Christ, and he would produce faithfulness to you. Thank you for your word. Change us in it, and I pray that in your name. Amen.